I'm going to read to you today for First uh, Thessalonians 2, verses 1 through 16. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain, but that we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi. As you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you, while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witness, and God also, how holy and righteousness and blameless was our conduct toward you, believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God, which you have heard from us, you accept it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you, believers. For you brothers became Im imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets, and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind, by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they may be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins but wrath has come upon them at last. So we're spending a few weeks looking at Paul's first letter to the Christians in the city of Thessalonica. Thessalonica was, it was a big city, about 100,000 people, maybe a little more than that. It was the capital city of Macedonia, uh, which was the region there in Rome that, uh, where, where Thessalonica was. Uh, Thessalonica was a free city, which meant that they ruled themselves. It was an honor and a privilege, uh, and very few cities achieved that, to be allowed to be a free city by Rome. Rome allowed them to have their own government. They allowed them to, to make their own rules. They, they had elections for politicians. They called them politarchs back then. Uh, but they elected politarchs, politicians who would make the rules and enforce the rules there in Thessalonica. It was a great privilege. It was something that had to be jealously 
guarded. Which is why when Paul went there and he started preaching and he started converting people and there started to be trouble, well, let me back up a little bit. We, we've looked before at Acts 17. Acts 17 is Luke's account of Paul's visit to Thessalonica. And I just want to read from a few verses there. Acts 17, verses 5-9. through 9, If you're using the Bibles in the pew, it's page 926. But verses 5-9 through 9 say, But the Jews were jealous. It's the Jews that were in Thessalonica. They were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason. Jason was one of the leaders of the church there in Thessalonica. They attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, that is the apostles, they dragged Jason and some of the other brothers before the city officials, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the, all the, and the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things, and when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. So, the things that Paul was preaching, the effect that he was having, the call that he made on the lives of the people there in Thessalonica, it upset the people. It upset the authorities. And being a free city, they formed a free mob. And they rushed in and they went looking for Paul and his friends there at Jason's house. They shut Paul down in that free city. Verse 9 says that they took money. And what it seems to be indicating is that Jason paid the bribe and Paul had to get out of town. Rather than being arrested again, Paul simply had to leave town. What is it we say about America? It's a free country, right? We're a free country in the same way that Thessalonica was a free city because we rule ourselves. But the other side of that is exactly what Paul experienced here in Thessalonica. Being a free country doesn't mean that you get to say anything you want. It doesn't mean that we get to say whatever we, whatever we want and that everything that we say will be accepted because a mob can turn and our message can become unpopular and we can find ourselves being rejected by the people around us if they don't like what we have to say. Sometimes that happens. We might feel that way right now. There might be reasons why we would feel that way. But how do we respond to that? There are some that respond by changing the message. If the people around us don't like our message, well, we'll change the message and we'll preach something that they, that they will like. We change what we proclaim. We change what we believe. We stop calling sin, sin. But the truth can't be changed. There are others who respond to that by becoming all the more offensive. Uh, by, by giving as good as they get. But that response does nothing for the souls of those who oppose us. And the fact is, it just diminishes the grace of God. Much later, later in your Bibles and later in, in the years, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul tells his friend Timothy, young minister, he tells Timothy in 2 Peter 4, verse 2, preach the Word, be ready in season and out of season. Be ready to preach in season and out of season. 
In other words, there's going to be times when what we say is popular. When it's in season to be a Christian. When it's in season to hold to our message. There's going to be times when it's not popular. When it's out of season to believe what we believe. Does that mean that the message changes? No. He says be ready to preach the message in season and out of season. Instead, we stand fast. Our world desperately needs Christians who will stand fast on the message of Jesus Christ. Not stand fast so that we can be right. Not stand fast so that we can be heard. Not stand fast so that we can get the politicians in office that we want. But stand fast for their souls. Paul experienced the kind of rejection in Thessalonica that we might fear for the church in America in our day. His focus was exactly where our focus has to remain though. As Paul says here, and as we have to continue, we speak to please God. We have to speak to please God. That's something we have to always keep front and center. Our first audience is God. My first responsibility is not to you guys. My first responsibility is not for this community. It is not for this town. My first responsibility is not to grow this church. My first responsibility is to God to present His message faithfully. I have seen preachers who have been motivated by being popular. Popular isn't always right. Paul wasn't popular in Thessalonica. But that didn't change Paul's message. And it shouldn't change ours either. Look at verses 2 and 3 here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Excuse me, verses 3 and 4. Paul says, For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. He says, Our appeal, our message has to do something. It has to call for a response. You have to do something with the Gospel. Either accept it or reject it. But you have to do something. Where does that appeal come from? He says it can't come from three sources. He says it can't come from error. And honestly, that's something we've got to keep an eye on. Because it's very easy to, to get off topic and it's very easy to change the message. It's very easy to adopt error as our message. We have to watch that. We have to keep an eye on that. It, it has to come, it can't come from impurity. Impurity, he means by impure motives. Uh, it can't come from an impure motive for, the, for our crowd, for our people. And it also can't come from an attempt to deceive. That is, to trick people into agreeing with us, to trick people into believing what we believe. Now, you realize those three things error, impurity, and deception you don't have to go too far from here to find churches that are doing those things, to find people who are doing those three things. Rather, he says, we, plea, we speak to please God who tests our hearts. We speak to please God who tests our hearts. I read that. And I wonder, why do we have to explain this to people over and over again? Why do we have to make an issue of this over and over again? Why do we have to defend ourselves to anyone? Why can't we simply say, we speak to please God? Here's His Word. Here's what it says. Here's what we're going to proclaim. We answer to God. That means we don't get to change what the message is about. We don't get to change what we call people to. We have to remain true to the message as it has been given to us. i got to tell you, it is not unusual for me, I'm going to say probably at least once a week, maybe, maybe more than that, 
to read an article where someone has some new interpretation of something the Bible says. And it just so happens that that new interpretation falls in line with something new that our society is doing. Or some new focus that we have. And it's not unusual. I'm guessing, Steve, once a week at least. We find some article where someone is saying, oh, this doctrine that we've always held, it's not actually what the Bible's talking about. Or this thing that we've always called a sin, it's not really a sin. Really? Because it, it meant that for 2,000 years. It meant that for, for 2,000 years. What, why change now? Are we changing it because society has changed? You know, the, the Christians in Thessalonica, they used to be pagans. They used to follow false gods. They worshipped idols. When they responded to the Gospel, they changed. They transformed. They could not remain the same. Paul says in verse 13, we also thank God constantly for this, that when you, when you former idol-worshipping pagans, we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the Word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the words of men, but as what it really is, the Word of God. The Word of God at work in you Believers, changing, transforming, creating something new. That's what our message has to do. It has to bring change. And we can't forget that. We also can't forget that while we speak to please God rather than people, we also have to remember that we speak with gentleness. You, know, you look at Acts chapter 17. Paul and Silas visit Thessalonica. What kind of reception did they receive? They did not receive a warm reception. You know, they didn't receive a friendly reception. In fact, they were charged, <laughs> they were charged with disturbing the peace. And the response of disturbing the peace was that the Thessalonians formed a mob and they ran them out of town. But Paul was the one who was disturbing the peace. And what you have to understand is the peace of Rome, the Pax Romana. The peace of Rome stated that you will be at peace, you will keep your mouth shut, you will do what we tell you to do, and you won't say anything that opposes what Rome says. That is the peace of Rome. It was an enforced peace. Well, Paul and Silas were disturbing that. And so the crowd forms a mob. They, they gather up these people. I love the words that, they use, that, that he uses here when he describes it. He says in Acts 17, the people were jealous. They were wicked. They, they got together the rabble. They, I love that. In a town like Thessalonica, they knew who the rabble was. How many of you know who the rabble is around here? Anyway. You don't need to know who the rabble is. We can tell who the rabble is. They formed a mob and they set the city in an uproar. But Paul was the one who was disturbing the peace. That's how the city reacted to Paul's message. That's the reception that Paul received. There are times in our free country when we might feel like we have the same reception, but hear me, that does not give us the right to become a rabble. That does not give us the right to form a mob. That does not give us the right to respond with wickedness or with an uproar. How did Paul respond to those who opposed his message? In verse 7, he says, But we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. Paul uses the example of a nursing mother to express his gentleness. I've never been a nursing mother. I've just been a father, but... What I can tell you that, that I know is that nursing mothers give of themselves, don't they? they? They give of themselves. They produce 
nursing mothers produce what their babies need, right? They, they only produce something that the baby needs. They would not produce something that is harmful to the baby. Do I got that right? Right? Yeah, that's the way it works. And what Paul is telling us is that's how we should be with our message. That's how we should present the Gospel. Gentle. Presenting it as something that people need. Now, there's got to be a balance to that. And I'll get into that part in just a little bit. But a great amount of the confrontation and condemnation that I see and hear from Christians doesn't look like this. It doesn't look a thing like gentle like a nursing mother. You know, on, on any given day, I can, again, read articles from Christians opposing things that are happening in society. On any given day, I can read some really inflammatory posts on Facebook or I can see some really bad attempts to make jokes about other people and read articles that in no way reflect the gentleness of a nursing mother. And we have to stop and ask before we say those things, before we post those things, we have to stop and ask, is this going to produce anything helpful? Is this in any way going to produce anything gentle? Or is this going to be harmful? What you and I have to keep in mind is that a lot of these issues that we, where we feel confronted today are coming from people who are broken. They are coming from people who are hurting. Those people are not our enemies. Paul says the way that he met the Thessalonians. He says in verse 8, this is how Paul met the Thessalonians. He said, so being affectionately desirous. You see that? Verse 8, so being affectionately desirous of you. Now I want you to think about those two words. Affectionately desirous. These people were idolaters when Paul met them. They worshiped false gods. More often than not, worship of those idols, worship of those false gods involved sexual immorality that I'm not even going to begin to cover today. But as far as your brain will go, go even further. That's what worship of these false gods involved. They also involved drug use in their worship of their false gods. But even then, Paul says we were affectionately desirous of you. He was affectionately desirous of them in his presentation of the Gospel with gentleness. He goes on there in verse 8. He says, So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the Gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. Kind of sounds like what Paul writes in Romans chapter 5, verse 8 when he says, of Jesus, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, if that's how God treated us while we were opposed to Him, how dare we treat anyone with anything less than that and call it good news? We can't do that. We speak to please God. We also speak with gentleness. But we can't lose sight that we also speak to provoke a response. The opposition that Paul faced in Thessalonica, if you notice there in, in Acts chapter 17, the opposition that he faced began with the Jews. And I want you to hear that. The opposition that Paul faced began with the people of God. And far too often, that is still true. It's not the world that's criticizing us. It's not the world that's condemning us. In fact, the majority of people outside of the church couldn't care less what we say, couldn't care less what we believe. It's other Christians. And you look at what the result was in verses 
14 through 16 here. Paul says, For you brothers became imitators of the churches of God. There's that word, imitator again. You became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same kind of things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them. They were working, these people that were opposed to Paul's message, they were working to hinder the salvation of these other people. They were working to hinder the response to the message that Paul preached. We can't lose sight that the goal of our message, the goal is salvation. The goal is a response. Again, back in verses 11 and 12, Paul says, For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into His own kingdom and glory. You see what Paul's doing here? In the previous section, he talked about how we were like nursing mothers among you. Gentle, like a nursing mother. But here, he says, we were like fathers. He says in verse 11 there, for how you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God. Let me ask you, is there a difference between mom and dad? Mom and dad, mom and dad both love you, right? But there's a difference between mom and dad, right? There's a difference between the way they raise you. There's a difference between the way they encourage you. There's a difference in the way that they discipline you. And if I could just put it simply what Paul is saying here when he says we were gentle among you like a nursing mother and then we were like fathers to you, I think what I would say is mothers put the best into you and fathers try to get the best out of you. Would you agree with that? Mothers put the best into you. Fathers try to get the best out of you. And he expresses that in verse 12 with three words. He says, we exhorted you, we encouraged you, and we charged you. Those three words work together to draw us to make a commitment, to draw us to keep a commitment. Exhort. It's not a word we use a lot. But exhort means to instruct on a particular line of conduct or a particular line of behavior. And that's what he says we did as a father. We instructed you on a particular line of conduct. I think about fathers out in the backyard with their sons, teaching them to throw that perfect spiral in the football, you know, and teaching them over and over again to do that. My dad even did that with me, you know, believe it or not. Look at how well it worked. I was a good student of that. But they teach you how to throw that perfect spiral over and over again. That's exhorting, teaching you how to deal with certain situations, teaching you how to behave and how to behave properly. And then there's encouragement. And encouragement is there encouraging them to the finish line, encouraging them to the goal line, encourages to, is that call to continue the course. And then he says, and we charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God. That is a call for a decision, a call for a commitment. And that's what people desperately need. And yet this world today, everything in this world tells them you don't have to make a commitment. Everything in this world says you don't have to commit, you don't have to change, you don't have to choose. Just do what feels right. Do what makes you happy. If it makes you happy, then, then it's fine. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, preach the Word, be ready, in season and out of season. 
In other words, there are going to be times when what we have to say is not in season. When what we have to say is not popular. We don't change the message in those times, though. In fact, I, I want to read 2 Timothy chapter 4. I want to read the first five verses. I find it really interesting, and maybe I'm the only one that does, but 1 Thessalonians is probably Paul's first letter. 2 Timothy is Paul's last letter, written decades apart, long time apart. And yet there's a consistency to this message. There's consistency to what he says. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, Paul says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge, who is to judge the living and the dead, by, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort. There's that word exhort again. With complete patience, there's that gentleness there, with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming. Imagine this. Imagine what he's talking about here. The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Can you imagine days like that? What does he say? As for you, always be sober minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Does it sound familiar? Time is coming when people won't endure. Sound teaching instead, they will want someone who will suit their passions, who will suit their own desires. Paul says, don't give up. Don't give in. Stand fast on the message. Our world desperately needs Christians who will stand fast on the message of Jesus. They need to be able to hear the message and not be turned off by it. So we need to present it gently. They also need to know that the message is calling them to a decision. That it calls them to a commitment. They need to know that they are being called to a God who loves them. That they are being called to a Savior who died for them. Because you know what, what this world has, what this world has to offer, it won't last. Things that are popular today won't be popular tomorrow. Things that are here now, they'll just all fade away. Things come in and out of fashion, in and out of season. What does God say about that? In Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8, God says, The grass withers, flowers fade, but the word of, the, the word of God will stand forever. So we have to make sure we're standing on the word of God. That we are standing fast. Standing fast for ourselves, but also standing fast for a world that changes, a world that desperately needs to know something lasts forever. Let's pray. Father, it's a tough call that You've made on our lives. You've called us to commitment to You. You've called us to honor You as the, as the giver of truth. Lord, it's a truth that sometimes our world will go along with, and sometimes they won't. But Father, we have no choice but to stand. To stand fast on, on what You've given us. Father, we pray for the strength that we need 
every day to do that. Father, I pray also just for those that will speak that truth and that will carry that truth. Those will stay away from error or stay away from that impurity and stay away from, from that deception. But Father, that we will stand fast on Your truth. Father, we also pray for gentleness. Lord, there are people in our lives who are hurting. There are people in our lives who desperately need to know not only the, the call that You have, but also the love that You have for them. Lord, that You love them dearly. Father, they're going to hear that from us. They're going to hear that from our message. And they're going to see that in the way that we love them, the way that we care for them. Lord, the way that we are desirous for them to know You, to come to You. We thank You that at some point in our lives, somebody reached out to us with Your truth. Somebody loved us enough to share Your message with us. And Father, I pray that we can have that kind of love for those around us, that we can reach out to them and show them that as well. We love You. Thank You for loving us. It's in Jesus' name we pray.